Welcome to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop, where you'll find the unique, the bizarre, and sometimes the haunted. Feel free to look around, peruse the items, and never fear. There's nothing here that bites. Hard, anyway. <laughs> well, hello there. So wonderful to see you returned yet again to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. And again this week, not our usual time together for today is a very special day and we have a very special item to show you. If you'll follow me this way to the section of the shop, it's not a very large section. We do not deal in very many sports items. But that is not to say that some sports items have a very interesting story to tell. And sometimes it may even dance into the mystical, the mythical, and the macabre. Take, for instance, this unique piece here. This is an old hockey goaltender's mask. Very primitive by the standards of today's hockey goalies. A mere sheet of plastic. Hardly formed to fit the face, cutouts for the eyes, and vents to allow this mask to breathe. This particular mask, scarred and chipped and cracked, and do I notice a hint of blood on this? Hockey is a sport full of artistry and violence, and it ties in perfectly for this bonus episode of Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop falls on a particular day that is quite sacred here at Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. It is, of course, Friday the 13th, and this not any bonus episode of the podcast, for this is a Be Kind Rewind episode of Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. So let's pull out the VCR, slide in the cassette, adjust the tracking, and take a look at the horrors of Friday the 13th. So this has been a very busy week uh, on the podcast. We've had three full episodes, you know, our two regulars on Monday. We talked about The Exorcist Believer. Late Tuesday evening, I put up a bonus episode of Pet Cemetery Bloodlines. Uh, yesterday, we posted uh, another episode, our usual Thursday episode for VHS 85. And when I found out that October had a Friday the 13th in it, I thought, oh my God. Uh, I, I've got to do something for that. But what was I going to do for a Friday the 13th in October? And then my wife, uh, she she points out the simple things that uh, sometimes elude me. And she, uh, inadvertently, she was like, okay, it's Friday the 13th. She's not a huge horror fan, although she has watched some horror movies. There are a lot of classic horror films that she's heard a lot about, but she's never watched. So she came to me. She's like, okay, we have a Friday the 13th coming up. If you want to, I will sit down and watch Friday the 13th with you on Friday the 13th. And I was all over that uh, because I've been trying to get her to watch some horror movies with me. And when she is willing to watch something with me, I have to jump all over that. So I, I love exposing people that have never seen some of these classics to to the, the things that I love. So we decided, though, that... 
Uh, you know, I wanted to do this Be Kind Rewind for Friday the 13th on Friday the 13th. So I said, well, I know you said you'd watch it on the day, but do you mind if we watch it a couple days early so I can rewatch it for this episode? And she was like, I don't care, whatever. And so we watched it last night and it's the first time I had watched Friday the 13th in its entirety, the original one since, ah, geez, probably the 90s at some point. I'd caught probably bits and pieces of it here and there on television since then, but I hadn't really sat down and, and watched it uh, from start to finish for for quite a while. I'm going to say maybe 20 years. Uh, 90s might be pushing it. I know I've watched it in the 90s, probably watched it several times in the 90s. Uh, probably within the past 15, 20 years, I've watched it at some point. But uh, but it has been a while. So it was really fun for me to sit down and watch this and re-experience it. And experience it with my wife, who was experiencing this movie for the first time. Now, unfortunately for me, she never finds these movies as scary as I did when I first watched it. Because I think, like I've said, we've become desensitized over the decades as to what is really good horror and what was really scary back in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, may not seem it may seem tame by today's standards if you've watched uh, some scarier things like I know my wife was uh, traumatized by the end of the ring so <laughs> that's a that's a different kind of terror different kind of horror than this so uh, she didn't find this movie as as scary as I did and and even me uh, you know, there was a lot less to this movie to be scared about than I remembered. Not that it didn't have some scary moments. So we're going to talk about this. This is a movie that I definitely rented on VHS uh, back in the day. Although this wasn't the first Friday the 13th that I rented from whatever video store I, I went to at the time. Uh, I have to say that, and I think that's the beauty of this movie, this first movie, is a kid like me, you know, born in 74, uh, I really didn't come of an age where, like, my mom, my mom was pretty, you know, we were pretty religious, and she really monitored the type of movies I watched, and, of course, she heard all the horror stories about those slasher movies that introduced kids to the devil, you know, that sort of thing, so it wasn't until I was a little bit older uh, that I started to be allowed to watch stuff like this. My best friend would come and spend the weekend and we'd go and rent movies. And she was a little cooler, you know, about some of the movies I watched. And, and one of those in particular was the first Friday the 13th movie that I watched. And that, I believe, would have been Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, in that came out in August of 86. So by the time it came out on VHS, I would have been 11 at that time, probably 12 by the time it came out on, on VHS. And my, my best friend and I rented it and watched it, absolutely loved it. And that's when we kind of went back and started watching the other Friday the 13th. And that was the beauty is because, you know, when we were kids growing up, all you heard about is Jason, Jason Voorhees. Jason Voorhees was synonymous with Friday the 13th. That's why we talked about the mask at the beginning, because the Jason Voorhees hockey mask is synonymous with Friday the 13th. But when you go back and watch these, and I don't know if I went back and watched them in sequential order 
or if I kind of cherry picked or, or how it went or if I waited till they came on TV because it wasn't long after that that we moved to North Carolina where I lived in Pennsylvania growing up as a kid. We didn't have cable. Uh, the cable didn't come out that far. We lived kind of just outside of town. But when we moved to North Carolina, I, that was my first experience with cable television and watching all these movies on the USA Network on a Saturday afternoon when they just run horror movie after horror movie. So I, I went back over the years following watching part six and and watched some of these old ones. And that was one of the shockers of going back and rewatching the first five Friday the 13th is the fact that in Friday the 13th, the, you know, the original from 1980, Jason Voorhees wasn't the the killer in that. It was his mom, Pamela Voorhees. And then in Friday the 13th Part 2, uh, it was Jason, but he didn't have the iconic hockey mask. He had like a burlap sack with a hole cut in it. And even Friday the 13th, A New Beginning, Part 5, that wasn't even Jason as well. It was still a guy in a, a hockey mask, but it wasn't Jason Voorhees. So, you, you know, starting out with Part 6 being the first Friday the 13th I watched from start to finish, uh, it was kind of a mind F <laughs> that you go back and it's like two of them weren't even Jason. One of them was Jason, but it didn't have the hockey mask. And you really only got two uh, prior to part six where, where it is Jason as we know Jason. And watching this movie, Friday the 13th, uh, you know, I, I have to imagine when it came out in 1980, that was kind of like, that was kind of how slasher movies were. It was not a lot of supernatural to it. It was a person in, you know, maybe a mask, uh, maybe not. Uh, I think Michael Myers, probably the first person to come along with a mask as far as slashers go was he supernatural wasn't he supernatural it was kind of left ambiguous at the end of it but this was kind of a run of the mill it was a, a serial killer uh, a regular person and and to see where it went from there to to where it is now uh it, it's kind of interesting how it, it had such humble beginnings but as a as a kid watching it back in 1980 i mean i would have only been you know what came out in may of 1980 i would have been not even six yet so i definitely wasn't watching that in the movie theater but i can imagine you know a teenager going to watch that in 1980 and scaring the shit out of you because it did have a lot of really good scares and a lot of good suspense. And I think that's one of the things that director Sean S. Cunningham did well with that movie is he did really incorporate a lot of suspense, a lot of atmosphere and a lot of patience. There are so many of those scenes where he's just very patient, leaving the camera linger on somebody and just linger a little longer than you should. That's the perfect recipe for creating tension in a horror film is lingering and having the patience to leave the camera on somebody and while, while people in their seats are kind of leaning in, waiting to see what's going to happen. And I don't know if that is a result of the fact that he worked with Wes Craven on The Last House on the Left. So again, you had Sean Cunningham learning from a master of horror or who would become a master of horror. And uh, I, I wonder if, you know, he he learned some of his horror chops for that, that first Friday the 13th uh, from Wes Craven. Now, I'm going to talk about the cast really quick because there's a lot of interesting characters in this and uh, some interesting actors. I will say the, the cast I really liked. One of the things I really liked about this cast is kind of the misdirect that you get at the beginning because you have Robbie Morgan who plays Annie, who 
you you see her, you meet her right off the bat. She seems like kind of girl next door uh, vibe about her. You think, okay, this is the girl we're going to see this movie through the, her perspective. You think she's going to be the final girl, even though the final girl really wasn't even a moniker back then. But you think this is going to be the heroine. This is the girl that you're going to be following and worrying about the whole time. And then she dies like right off the bat. And you're kind of like all bets are off. And I know my wife, that was the one thing she commented on. She thought, I really like this girl. Uh, she seemed, you know, fun and, and a nice person and very interesting. And you wanted to get to know her better and get to know her more. And then she kicked the bucket. And I will say that I almost liked the Annie character a little more than I did the Alice character. That's not a knock on Adrian King, who plays Alice in one of the few final girls that they really haven't brought back, much like they did with Laurie Strode, much like they did with the character from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, even though it wasn't the same actress, much like they did recently with Ellen Burstyn, although she really wasn't a heroine, you know, it's, it's all legacy stuff now, but I, I wonder if they're going to try to do some legacy thing with Adrian King as Alice, uh, whether she'd be up for that. But ultimately, like I said, I really like the Annie character a little more than I like the Alice character. And it was a shame she, she died so early, but it really, it set the stakes in all of this and put the menace like right up front and center. But the rest of the cast, I, I liked them as well. I liked Robbie Morgan as Annie. Adrian King as Alice was good. It's not that she was a bad character or or Adrian King did a bad job. I just, I don't know. There was just something about the Annie character I liked a little more. But of the rest of the cast, uh, if you're going to follow somebody and this be your quote-unquote heroine this be your quote-unquote final girl I, I liked Alice because she had kind of a, a wide-eyed innocence about her that really played into that archetype you had Bill played by Harry Crosby Bing Crosby's son Brenda played by Lori Bartram that's the thing about uh, Lori Bartram and Adrian King uh, they're both uh, I believe spent some time doing some soap opera acting they had been on some soap operas over the years and I think that's where you really saw the huge difference between uh, like soap opera actors in this and the Jack character Kevin Bacon because Kevin Bacon you could tell even I mean this is one of his earliest if not his earliest film role and you could really tell that he had the acting chops. There was a, a cool subtleness to his acting that didn't feel over the top at all. Whereas some of the other actors felt like they were, you know, felt like they were acting. Kevin Bacon just felt like it was Kevin Bacon. And and that's, I, I, you know, just watching this, you could tell like, oh, you see why he went on to do bigger things. And I also found it interesting that they paired uh, Ned, played by Mark Nelson, Kevin Bacon as Jack, and the Marcy character, Janine Taylor, uh, together, because I think all three of them had done some acting together in some form or fashion, whether, I can't remember if it was plays or like an acting troupe or something like that. So it was kind of neat to see those three together, knowing that they had had some had some time and some camaraderie. I will say about the Ned character that uh, that was the character that my wife, like right off the bat, she was like, I hope he dies <laughs> because the Ned character was really the prototype of the jokester slash prankster character in horror 
maybe even more so in slasher horrors. Because in like Black Christmas, which was really kind of the impetus for the slasher movie, Halloween, a, a close second to that, you really didn't have the jokester in that. And, and this one you did with the Ned character. And it's not that the character is a bad guy. He's just very annoying. And you have to imagine that a lot of the inspiration for that is the fact that this character is hiding a lot of insecurities through humor and playing jokes and playing pranks and stuff like that. But this Ned character was kind of like the prototype for that because in subsequent Friday the 13th movies and in other slasher movies, whether it be Halloween or Nightmare on Elm Street or what have you, uh, you see this character start to pop up more and more after... Friday the 13th in 1980. So that's kind of a, a an interesting uh, jumping off point for a stereotypical character from a horror movie, a slasher movie. Uh, it all started right here. Then you had Peter Brower as Steve Christie. Uh, not a character I cared one way or the other about. He seemed like he could have been a douchey character, but the character wasn't really douchey, although he acted a little weird around... The Alice character. Uh, but I, I looked at him and I was like, oh, it's like blonde Tom Selleck with the big mustache and uh, wearing short shorts and no shirt. It felt like watching an old episode of Magnum P.I. only with a blonde guy. But I think the real special actress in this is, of course, Betsy Palmer as Pamela Voorhees. And it's it's she does such a wonderful job with this. She exudes that kind of wholesome niceness when you first meet her. And then that really plays into a lot of the roles that she got before this. You know, she was she was known as a, an actress from like the 50s. And uh, like I said, a lot of these wholesome roles that she was known for. And I think that's part of the reason why she was a little hesitant about this. But I, I like hearing her method of acting where she kind of gave this character backstory about how she got pregnant out of wedlock and got kicked out of her home and then she raised her child and her child was special and then all this that happened and it was kind of a really it's a really interesting study on you know giving your character a backstory and and she does such a wonderful job she plays the wholesomeness the, the kindness that when Alice first meets her outside of the camp building and then the descent into uh, madness and the mania and her channeling the voice of Jason, just, oh my gosh, she just, it was over the top, but over the top in a good way that just makes, makes his character so wonderful. And it's a shame that she ends up getting beheaded in this, but uh, uh, we, we do see her show up in various forms. Uh, well, at least the prosthetic head. And I don't know, I think they may have used some voice work of hers in some of the other ones. But uh, but yeah, Betsy Palmer, uh, the late Betsy Palmer, uh, a shame we lost her in 2015, but uh, really made this original Friday the 13th such a, a special movie. Something else that made this movie special was the involvement of Tom Savini. Of course, you know, he kind of became a household name in horror with Dawn of the Dead and George Romero. And that's kind of why he got this job. He does such a great job with 
with prosthetics and special effects that effect with Kevin Bacon where the, the arrow comes through his neck. Of course, you've seen it on all sorts of documentaries about Friday the 13th and documentaries about horror and horror effects and monsters and stuff like that. Uh, but like the, the, the head getting cut off looks great. Some of the stab wounds, the axe in Bre- was it Brenda's head uh, looks really good. And he's just such a, a fantastic special effects artist and it's really special to watch you know some of these early effects that he did and and mastered over the years my only problem is that there were so many of these kills that were off screen and i didn't remember so many of the kills being off screen because ned he's killed off screen although we do get to see him with his throat slit on top of the bunk when marcy and jack are having their little tryst brenda's killed off screen bill is killed off screen steve isn't killed off screen but we don't even see the stab puncture wound we don't only see the knife coming out of him uh, later on when they start revealing body after body so it was a little shock that you know like so many of these deaths uh in a slasher movie were all done off screen and i don't know whether that was a budgetary thing of of not having to do the effect at the time and you could just make somebody up and show them with an arrow sticking out of them instead of trying to actually shoot them with an arrow i mean that would be understandable for a a very low budget movie but when you think of friday the 13th you think of all those gruesome kills and and all the the great special effects and gory special effects and to to watch this after seeing all those it really feels like this was tame by even later in the 80s standards and not that i think this needed to be a gore fest to be scary because it certainly did not but it was just interesting that how how much it did this franchise did turn into a gore fest and and it had these kind of humble beginnings where it was it was more about the tension it was more about the atmosphere it was more about the cat and mouse stalking of mrs Voorhees and these camp counselors than it was about the the creative kills or the gory special effects and things like that i think if more movies these days more horror movies uh paid a little more attention to that even even modern slasher films like the the David Gordon Green. I don't want to jump on that soapbox of how much I dislike those Halloween movies he did. But if he would have spent a little more time building the tension and worrying about the atmosphere and less about you know having Michael Myers smashing somebody's head in or busting through a wall, almost like he is Jason Voorhees, uh, those probably would have been scarier or even slightly better movies than they really were. Now, I will say that in in re-watching this, I guess I didn't remember this. Back when I was a kid and rented this on VHS tape, uh, it it just seemed like a really cool, scary horror movie. But on re-watching it now, as as I'm older, and I think I'm, I'm paying attention to these things a little bit more, especially now that I'm doing this podcast is that there are some things that are drawn out. They do draw out the beginning of this. You'd get some scenes where you see the POV shot of Mrs. Voorhees watching them, and it's creepy, but I don't think you get enough of that to necessitate it just taking so long to get to where we're going as far as the killings starting. Now, I know they start early with Annie, but the bulk of the killings don't start till it gets dark out. I think the ending of this as well, after everyone else is dead and it is just Alice and Mrs. Voorhees, 
it just really draws out. You have the big start of the fight in the cabin. And then it goes outside and it goes to the, I think it goes to the generator room. And then it goes from there to the room with all the the guns that she's trying to find the bullets. And then it goes from there back to the, the cabin. And then it goes from the cabin to the beach. And it's just, it's like, oh my God, I just, when I thought, okay, here's where the ending happens. They move to some other location. And that was just, it, it all felt a little drawn out. It, it was too long. Uh, I, I I could understand wanting to, to build up to that ending because it is a, a big ending with Mrs. Voorhees getting her head whacked off with a machete. That's cool. I, I like that. But to get from from where the fight between these two started and where it ended, it just seemed like it took an eternity. And it, I get it in some regards. I don't even think some of the locations she went to and ran to, there wasn't even a body to discover. She discovered most all of those bodies uh, when she was running out of that cabin. Maybe, maybe Bill's at the generator house. But yeah, it just it, they drug it out too long. And that's probably one of my biggest complaints is that it took a little too long to get through that first act and maybe even to the beginning of the second act and then it that climax it just the the final fight was too drawn out not that it didn't have a great ending but yeah it just uh it was a little too long a little too much they they tried to do too many things probably all in service to get it to an hour and a half runtime but in in doing that they made an hour and a half movie feel like a two-hour movie but i will say in in watching this again i thought it had a lot of good atmosphere not a ton of big jump scares although it did have a couple jump scares in it but yeah it was all just fear based on patience and tension and atmosphere and those creepy pov shots which eh, granted that's nothing new under the sun those were maybe not introduced but made a thing in black christmas made famous by halloween and of course in this you know they they continue the tradition of the pov shot of the slasher and it really works to great effect seeing little bits of the killer without seeing the killer like seeing a foot or seeing an arm or a, a little bit of a glimpse of a hand because you, you see glimpses of a hand but you don't really get a good enough look to see that it is a female's hand and they amp up the tension making you lean in closer on your seat to to see what's going to happen to to set you up for the scares and i will say the one big scare that got my wife i, I felt the the couch lurch because she was so frightened by it is that scene where kevin bacon's jack character is on the bed and that hand comes up from under the bed and holds his his head down before the arrow goes through his neck and the beauty of that scene is the fact that there's not a big sound effect. It is not, you know, there's there's a little bit of a sound or a little bit of a score or a music sting. But it is all in just the surprise of that hand coming up and made my wife jump. <laughs> I don't think I've seen her jump in a horror movie uh, quite like that in, in quite some time. Now, the thing I thought she was going to jump with was the Jason coming out of the water at the end. Because from what I understand, Jason wasn't supposed to be in this at all, but they decided they needed that that scene from Carrie where the hand comes up out of the, the rocks. 
And from what I understand, Tom Savini was the one that came up with this idea. And I think it's great. I think it works to great effect and really sets up the, you know, I don't think this series is a franchise unless you reintroduce the Jason character to it, other than just the story that Pamela Voorhees tells or that the the little bit of a kid drowned thing that you get at the beginning of the movie. But I really thought when he come up out of the water and grabbed Alice and pulled her in, I thought my wife was going to jump. Maybe the fact that they did it in slow motion, it wasn't as surprising. And and I agree, I, I didn't jump. I just love that scene. I think it's a great little, little grab pardon the pun, at the end of this movie that I think it needed. And then one final thing we're going to talk about that I really liked about this movie before we we wrap things up on this Be Kind Rewind episode is the fact that the, the music was wonderful. Harry Manfredini did a fantastic job with the score on this, and they did it right because there's not a ton of score in this movie. You might get a little bit here and there, but they really saved the score, and they saved that main score for whenever Pamela Voorhees, whenever your killer is in the scene or is about to do something, then you get that score and it really has great effect because they're not over-egging the pudding. I know some people like eggy pudding, but uh, for those that don't, you don't want to over-egg the pudding. And just playing the, the theme song all the time uh, just it, it loses its cachet and of course when you have a, a theme like this that you know that when it plays the bad guy is there and somebody's gonna die it just amps up the tension and and builds the atmosphere and and i think harry manfredini did a great job with this score because it had so many cool elements like in in some regards it felt and i know they did that because that whole thing with only playing the that main score when the bad guy is about when Pamela Voorhees is about to get somebody and is on the screen he got that from jaws where you only hear that dun dun dun, dun. you only hear that score when jaws is there and somebody's going to die now i think that really works with this but i also like the fact that the, his score really does evoke bits of jaws bits of the psycho theme not ripping them off or anything like that but but they're just tonally and and beat wise but i like how some of the beats of this score really feel like they were inspired by jaws and that score and uh, from john williams and the score from psycho and lent itself to that combination of being stalked by some creature and the terror of a psychopath a serial killer coming down on you and and killing you so i think in that regard you know those are the two perfect things uh to to draw inspiration from uh when you're talking about scores so all in all watching this again after like i said i haven't really watched it completely all the way through in probably 15 maybe 20 years and and thinking back to that first time i saw it when i rented it on a vhs cassette at my local video store popping it in the vcr i I can see why this movie did so well because it really was you know maybe not anything new because we already had like i said black christmas and and halloween but I can see where they were really inspired by Halloween uh, to, to come up with this movie featuring a serial killer. I know it originally wasn't going to be titled Friday the 13th. They were going to call it A Long Night at Camp Blood. But then they changed it to Friday the 13th. Playing off the holiday thing. You know, Again, this movie very much not inspired by Halloween. But we wouldn't have 
Friday the 13th if it wasn't for Halloween. But you can see how they took the Halloween idea, the Black Christmas idea, and made it their own and made it into its own thing with with its own life and its own blood, uh, literally and figuratively. And, and it did well. I mean, this movie cost about $550,000 to make and took in just under $60 million at the box office. That's just at the box office, not to mention rental and the, you know, the residuals from selling it to, to various networks and cable channels to air over and over again and now with the streaming rights and all that. So this, yeah, you can see why this movie uh, made bank. A, you know, they kept the budget tight. They used it to good effect with great practical effects. Uh, they were smart with how they did the effects and smart with a cast. No huge stars, but you got really quality actors. And of course, Victor Miller wrote a scary fucking script that scared audiences, uh, you know, in 1980 and is still scaring audiences today, even though my wife wasn't as impressed. Like I said, I think she doesn't want to be scared. So I think she, you know, in her mind, she's always wanting to make jokes when, when horror movies are on, especially the older horror movies, I think it's just a defense mechanism because she doesn't want to have to go take the dog out at night and worry about Pamela Voorhees bearing down on her with a hunting knife. But if you haven't watched Friday the 13th in a long time, maybe maybe you haven't even watched it since you slid that VHS cassette into your VCR uh, back in the day, I encourage you to give it another watch. It really is, you, you can see the seeds of where this was going. You had no idea that this was going to go where it eventually ended up going. Uh, I never would have expected Jason going into space or taking on Freddy, although that seemed like a cool idea before it actually happened. And then we got the movie that we got, and it was like, ah, it was okay. <laughs> but but at any rate, uh, to see where this movie franchise has gone uh, from where it began, uh, you know, who would have who guessed? And it all started with that, that little movie that, you know, I heard about as a kid and went and rented at the video store. And, of course, wasn't my first introduction to Friday the 13th, but was my first introduction into where its origins began. And it was just a mind-blowing experience when I realized that, no, Jason isn't in this. It's his mom. What can I say? The family that kills together, well, they don't stay together because... They got separated by neglectful camp counselors doing it, but you get where I'm going with that. So I want to thank everyone for listening to my thoughts on Friday the 13th from 1980 on this Be Kind Rewind. Like I said, if you have a chance, go rewatch it and and enjoy all the fun that is that that original Friday the 13th and, and where the where it all began and what makes it so special. Thanks for listening to my thoughts on this Be Kind Rewind. Check out more what's going on with Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop on our social media pages, Facebook and Instagram. We're always posting about horror, fantasy, and science fiction. No matter where you listen to this podcast, leave a review five stars. would be awesome. But whatever review you leave, we do appreciate that. And as always, please share this podcast with anyone that you know that loves horror, fantasy, and science fiction. And subscribe to it so you can stay on top of all the episodes, not only the Monday and the Thursday episodes, but all the bonus content, uh, bonus episodes, Be Kind Rewinds, all that jazz uh, as we post them. So until next time. Thank you for visiting Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. We hope that you found something to your liking and visit the shop again soon. But even though you may come back, you never really get to leave Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. Ha 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 ha!